Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Why obey? Why? Ever thought about that? We, we, we think uh, about the gospel. We're deep in the patterns and the, the thickness of the gospel. We, we see that Jesus has paid for sin, and therefore all of my sins are forgiven. So why obey? What, what should we uh, gain, in a sense, from our obedience? And perhaps you've felt this tension before. You've felt, that, what's it matter? I can go on sinning, and I can find grace at the other end. Sometimes it's hard to speak to our children about this. If the gospel's true, if God forgives these sins and God meets us with grace, why does obedience matter? This morning, I want to kind of dig into this because I think this is a real problem for us today as evangelicals, as as people who have been so thoroughly trained in the gospel, and that's a good thing, that's not a bad thing. We tend to, to minimize the seriousness of sin. In one of life's rich ironies, we are actually tempted to to so um, center on God's payment for sin in Christ that we actually minimize the seriousness of sin. And our temptation is to do one of two things, to bring God's holiness down so his expectations of us aren't as high as they actually are, or to make our sin seem less than it is and to elevate ourselves so that we somehow find this communion with God. It's our question, why obey? And here's where I think Jesus is taking us in this passage. Our big idea is this. Obedience to Jesus' teaching tunes our hearts to commune with God. Obedience to Jesus' teaching tunes our hearts to commune with God. Now, I'm a musician. I like to play guitar. And let me just tell you how important tuning is, right? If you're not in tune, it's going to sound pretty nasty. A couple weeks ago, I think Kiara was playing then too, and my guitar was just wickedly out of tune. I thought, something just doesn't sound correct. And sure enough, when we compared tuning, she was in tune and I was wickedly out of tune, right? Well, Obedience is that means by which we tune our ear, as it were, into the heart of God, and we commune with him. And as Jesus is speaking in this passage, as he's preparing to go to the cross, as he's preparing to uh, ascend to the Father, he's preparing his disciples for this absence. And he speaks here in three different phases. Verses 15 through 17, the Spirit is in us to counsel us, Verses 18 through 20, Jesus is in us to empower us. Then in verses 21 through 24, he shows us that Jesus manifests himself to his obedient followers. I can't help but think about how important I think this passage is for us this morning. And yet, how little, I feel like I grasp this passage this morning. I feel like if I were to preach this five years from now, I would preach it vastly different than I'm going to preach it right now. So we need some grace. We need some mercy from God. I'm going to ask that God shares his heart with us from the scriptures. Lord, we ask again, allow us to see as you speak. Allow us to hear as you share your words with us. 
Lord, allow us to know you, to commune with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we see is in verses 15 through 17. The Spirit is in us to counsel us. Look at verse 15. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, loving Jesus, according to Jesus, loving him means obeying him. That's what he says in verse 15, and he's going to repeat himself in verse uh, 21. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there's a direct link between loving Jesus and being obedient to Jesus. Now, there's a natural question that kind of rises up in our minds. What are Jesus' commandments. That's what he says. You will keep my commandments. Well, elsewhere in the Bible, in Matthew uh, 22, Jesus summarized the law to say um, that the, the, the important aspects of the law are to love God and to love people. And he says, on, on these two commandments, the, all of the law and prophets hang. That is, that they're foundational to the rest of the law. That if we truly love God, Uh, we'll keep the Sabbath. If we truly love God, we won't create idols. If we truly love God, we won't uh, violate those first four commandments that God gives us. But if we truly love people, we won't be murderous or covetous or whatever else the latter five or six commandments are. Does that make sense? We, we, We see that Jesus is saying, when he says, my commandments, he's talking about the law. And at the very least, we're, we're talking about uh, sinning, that when we enter into these patterns of disobedience, we are showing our unlove or uncaring nature to our Savior, Jesus. But Jesus knew that if we were just kind of set to this task to show our love independently, we would fail miserably. So what he does in verses 16 and 17 is he shows us that he's sending help to us. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now notice the Trinitarian nature of what's discussed here, right? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going away, but I'm going to ask. I, the Son, am going to ask the Father and the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit. There's some pretty important things to note here. Notice, don't let this slip by you, right? Another helper. That means there's two, right? Or at least two. First, the first helper was Jesus. In fact, later on in 1 John chapter 2, uh, John is going to describe that Jesus is an advocate that we have before the Father. He's a paraclete. It's the same term that's used here. That word actually means, it means helper or counselor or consoler. It's someone who comes alongside us in our weakness and, and reminds us of, of God's grace and his mercy. But the second helper is the Holy Spirit. Notice how, how Jesus describes who this spirit is. First, he's that helper. He is the counselor, the, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside of us. He's the one who, who 
brings comfort in the gospel. He's the one who convicts of sin. He's the one who, who, who shows us from the scripture. He illumines the word of God that you and I, even now as we sit here, the spirit is working on us so that as we hear these words, we read these words, he's actually shaping us and forming us. And so God is describing the spirit as a helper, as a paraclete. Finally, or secondly, he is eternally with them. That's what he says. He will be with you forever. See, for the believer, the Spirit's assistance never ends. That God never abandons you because the Spirit resides in you. You thought about that, Christian? You, you think right now, uh, no matter how hard your circumstance is, the Spirit is still with you, comforting you, convicting you when needed, illumining the Scriptures when it's necessary. Even now, he prays for you, as Romans 8, he prays for you with, with groanings too deep for words, as Paul says. So he's the helper. He's eternally with us. He is the spirit of truth. See, as we've already seen in our series, he guides us into all the truth, as we saw from John 16 a few weeks ago. See, we, the, we know that the Holy Spirit kind of superintended the whole process of the recording of the scriptures and so he is the spirit of truth. He's the one who, who gives us the truth of Jesus in the scriptures. See, I love this passage because what Jesus does is he, he enters into a series of, of, of discussions. And what he's doing is he's actually bringing comfort to his disciples. And he has this pattern where he brings comfort or assurance, but he also brings clarification. And this is what he does next in, in 17a. Look at what he says in chapter 14, verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. See, in describing the spirit in verse 17, he says the world cannot receive him. That is, the world cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Remember, uh, if you were to turn back all the way to John chapter 3, Jesus is having discussion with Nicodemus, who's a, a Pharisee. And Nicodemus is extremely confused about the nature of the kingdom that, that Jesus has brought in. And Jesus says to him, he says this, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is highlighting Nicodemus' spiritual blindness, and he's speaking of the world's spiritual blindness, that they can neither see the Spirit nor know the Spirit because they are hardened in their sinful state. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 2. We, we quote this verse often. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. But notice this is counteracted with the way Jesus speaks to his disciples. He goes on, he says, you, disciples, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Right? The world does not know him, the world cannot see him, yet you know him. He's dwelt among you. Jesus received the anointing at his baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now they will, he will be in them as well. Don't miss that, that Jesus says that the Spirit will be in us, that he will dwell with us. In fact, that word dwell is really significant in these two chapters. It's actually uh, the word abide in John 15. If, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. 
Jesus said previously in this chapter, in verse 10, he says, I abide in the Father, I dwell in the Father. That is, he resides within you. Even now, the Spirit is in you, working in you, shaping you, forming you according to the will of God. As you've been raised to new life in Christ and you are moldable, as it were, in the gospel, God's Spirit is shaping you and forming you. See, the truth this morning is that the Spirit counsels God's people, doesn't he? That without the Spirit, let's just say that Jesus died and was resurrected and just kind of left us on our own, that we'd have no internal kind of mechanism to shape us and form us and guide us. It's a recognition this morning that there isn't really any way for us to be good enough for God to be present with us. You ever thought about that? There's no way for us to be just good enough for God. That is, the, the Spirit, the one who gives counsel, who's given by Jesus, is, is really foreign to us. If you're familiar with the, the, the uh, first century, there was this kind of group of people in Jerusalem called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were this interesting group of people. They were super religious. They tried to keep the laws. They tried to do everything they could. And, and what they were really trying to do was they were trying to take the, the purity of the temple and they were trying to bring it out amongst the people. Does that make any sense? They were trying to take the laws that, that were for the purity of the temple, and they were trying to slowly expand that so that God could come, could come and dwell in the midst of everyone. It was a little bit uh, misled, wasn't it? This is why they, they centered so much on the law, because they thought if we were good enough, God could come and dwell in our midst. But it's not true. We're not just people who occasionally do bad things is that we have a nature that itself is corrupt. And so if we're looking to just be good enough for God, we're always going to find ourselves frustrated and failing. See, I wonder sometimes if some of us might have this notion that, that we need to be good enough for God to kind of live with us, that if we just separate ourselves to such a degree, if we just kind of uh, just really hunker down and white-knuckle out this obedient life, that God will somehow dwell with us. And it's not entirely the whole story. I love when, when Paul writes to the Galatians. He's writing them, and he's saying, hey, why did you so quickly leave the gospel that I preached to you? And in chapter 3, he hits this point, and he's, he's kind of proving his point. He's saying, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works of the law or through faith? Did you receive the Holy Spirit because you did good things or because you believed rightly? See, Paul's point is to say that the Spirit didn't come to us based upon our goodness, our good works. The Spirit's given to us as a sign of our inward faith. In the midst of Jesus' absence, we needed a counselor. We needed one who would seal us, one who would guide us to the truth, one who would convict us, who would, who would gift us. This is exactly what Jesus is promising in the Spirit. But, but recognize that Jesus isn't done. Jesus just doesn't close his little talk right here at the end of verse 17. He wants to press on, and he wants us to see that he himself will come and be with us. Not just to counsel us, but to actually empower us to righteous living. Look at verse 18 through 20. Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, 
you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And what rich words from Jesus' mouth here for us this morning. And I wonder if we could even just press into a quarter of what these things mean. If we could just even just kind of ingest these, uh, there would just be almost too much for us to swallow. First thing he says is that Jesus will not abandon his own. You recognize that this morning? Jesus won't abandon you? Matthew 28, I will never leave you or forsake you. Listen to what he says. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you lost and destitute. I will not leave you or abandon you or just hand you over to the elements. I will be with you. See, we might think that he's still talking about the sending of the Spirit, but he's actually talking about his return. Look at what he says. He says, I will come to you. Again, it's easy for us to get confused here because Jesus promises us a second coming when he's going to return and judge the world. Is that what he's speaking about here? Well, probably not. Because if we look at what he says, he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. You know, when Jesus describes his second return, he says it's going to be like lightning that stretches across from the east of the sky to the west, that everybody sees it. It's the way he speaks of it in Matthew 24. Jesus isn't going to be hidden from the world. He'll return for everyone to see. So what's he speaking about here? I think he's speaking about his presence with his people as it is mediated through the Holy Spirit. That's a big sentence. Jesus is present with us right here, right now, because he's in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us. And so when Jesus is promising that he will come back and he will return, it's not just that he's going to come back at the second coming. He's returning to us in the gift of the Spirit. See, this is how he promises his disciples that he will be with them even to the end of the age. That is to say, when the disciples are filled with the Spirit, they are also filled with the Son and with the Father because the Spirit and the Father and the Son are one. They are together. Now notice the clarification he brings in verse 19. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Again, Jesus describes the world's lack of connection to him. The world does not see Jesus as you and I see him. Right now, as as Jesus kind of presses into us through the Spirit, we see Christ. We experience relationship and communion with Christ. We pray to the Father. We have connection with God as Christ is raised to us, as we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The God of the universe is giving us a knowledge of himself that the world does not have access to. And finally, this assurance, then in verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
Notice how Jesus describes his coming interaction with these disciples. Keep in mind, uh, these are present realities for you and I, but look at what he says is going to happen. First, these disciples will see Christ, not by means of a vision, not by means of their physical eyes. They will see Christ in our spirit. This is straight-up mystical theology. And because the Spirit is in us, we have eyes for Jesus, as it were. We see him as glorious to behold. Because we have faith in Jesus, we understand that he's the firstborn of creation. We understand that he is the firstborn of the dead, that he is preeminent in all things, that all things are from him and through him and to him. We have eyes to see that because the Spirit resides in us, because we've been raised to new life in Christ It's not just that we see Christ, it's that we live with Christ. Look at what he says in verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. It's that statement in Galatians chapter 2. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we see Christ, we live with Christ. Christ is in the Father. That claim, strong and powerful as it is in verse 20, You will know that I am in my Father. Jesus claims this connection to God. And then he extends that to us. He says, I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Christ is in us. We are in him. So not only does the Spirit counsel us, Jesus empowers us. Paul tells us that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. We were incapable of pleasing God. But now that we are in Christ, Jesus is our life. And so what we've seen is the Spirit is is here to counsel us. Jesus is in us to empower us. And then we get to the meat of this in verses 21 through 24. Jesus manifests himself to his obedient followers. Look at verse 21 and what Jesus says. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot. How would you like to have that title in life? I'm not the Iscariot Judas. I'm the other one, right? Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 21, Jesus shows himself to those who are lovingly obedient. We've got to be careful with this phrase, don't we? We've got to be really careful with this because we, in our culture, we tend to think, like, if I do good things, if I perform rightly, that's when God shows himself to me. Um, It's based solely upon my effort and the good things I do. I can earn God's favor enough so that he can show himself to me. And that's not quite what Jesus is really saying. We don't earn Jesus' love by our obedience. Rather, Jesus is saying that our love for him is shown through our obedience. See the difference? 
You and I aren't just trying to earn God's favor so that we have right standing with God. Right standing with God has come to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. And now, as we do the right things that God has called us to do, we show our love for him, and God shows his love for us in communing with us. But second, notice our love for Jesus that initiates a chain reaction in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now watch as the dominoes begin to fall in the rest of this passage. Uh, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. That's step number one, right? We love Jesus, and it initiates the Father's love for us. He who loves me will be loved by my Father. That is, our faith in Jesus Christ, Christ puts us in a category of right standing with God. And then the second step, it falls right on the heels. And I will love him. Jesus sees the Father's love for us and also loves us. Remember, Jesus never does anything independently from the Father, and he only does as he sees the Father doing. So as the Father extends his love, Jesus extends his love. And then step number three, having loved us, Jesus manifests himself to us. That's what he says, and I manifest myself to him. That is, anyone who loves Jesus should see Jesus in this spiritual sense. Though he does not see him with his physical eyes, the Christian sees Jesus in his spirit, there's a communion between the believer and Jesus himself. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He said, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. But all of this kind of needs more explanation. It's evidenced by the fact that Judas, the not Iscariot guy, raises his hand and he has a question for Jesus there in verse 22. And he says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus, do you have like some invisible ink or something that you're going to spread over yourself? What is this that you're talking about that I can see you, but my neighbor can't? How does this work? So Jesus asks a question. And what's funny is that what Jesus said in 21, he's basically going to repeat again in verse 23. So 21 and 23 are essentially saying the same thing. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Right? He basically says the same thing that he's just said. He's leaving the mystery there for Judas. He's saying, you don't understand this now, but soon you will understand it. You don't get this right now, but someday when I'm resurrected and the Spirit comes, you're going to understand exactly what what I'm pushing at here. So he gives this assurance in verse 23. Let's dig into this. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. He'll keep my commandments. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. I love this phrasing. It's, it's actually the same word for, for to dwell as used of the Spirit in verse 17. And it's actually the same term. If we were to kind of go back up all the way to chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it's the same term that's used there. Listen to what Jesus says at the beginning of this chapter. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
I mean, Jesus tells us, he says, I've got to leave because I'm going to prepare a place for you. But here in, in verse 23, he's telling us, I'm going to come to you and make my home with you. Do you see that? Do you see that Jesus is going away, but he's giving the Spirit, and then he's coming and he's dwelling with his disciples because he's making his home in us until we go to be home with him. Jesus doesn't abandon us as orphans. Jesus comes and he abides with us. He rests with us in our spirit so that you and I are filled, so that you and I are encouraged, empowered to do the things that God has called us to do. So there it is, right? The Spirit is in us. Jesus is in us. The Spirit is in us, but the world doesn't see him or know him. Jesus is in us, but the world no longer sees him. And we are in Jesus. So Jesus abides in us, manifests himself to us so that we can keep his words. Now, verse 24 is so important this because he brings this clarification again. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If I were to restate it again, I would state it from, from Matthew 7. You can judge a tree by its fruit. A good tree brings forth good fruit. A bad tree brings forth bad fruit. If I were to state it again, I would state it like Galatians chapter 5 says that these are the marks of the flesh and here are the marks of the spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness and self-control. All of these things are spirit wrought in us. And if you are here and you're claiming, I know Jesus, but my works do not show it, I have to tell you that verse 24 is telling you that you don't actually love Jesus. That if you're busy about doing all the things that your flesh wants you to do, that you cannot knowingly claim a love for Jesus Christ. Isn't this what Jesus has said twice in our short little nine verses here this morning? Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my my words. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. We have to stop because we've got to bring some qualification to this and we've got to say, surely there are Christians who do things that they don't want to do. We think of, of Paul in Romans 7. He says, you know, thing I do, I hate He's saying, hey, I know the law. The law tells me what not to do. It's, if it not said do not covet, I wouldn't have coveted. But the thing I know I should do, I hate, I do it. And he concludes this chapter and he just speaks up. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And if we don't go into Romans 8.1, we've lost it. We've missed the gospel. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what we're speaking about here in verse 24 is we're speaking about those people who come into our midst secretly in the designs and desires of their heart. They just do what they want. And then they claim a love for Jesus. And I'm saying those two things are in contradiction with what Jesus says here. It's perfectly possible for us, isn't it? to come in and put on an air of righteousness. 
to claim communion with Christ, but to never actually live in it. We ask, why is obedience important? Obedience is important because it's the thing that assures us of our rightness with God. Romans 8 says this, If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, if by the power of the Spirit you're living in the patterns of righteousness, it says you will live. Our sense of assurance that, that we love Jesus, that we have been renewed in Christ, comes partially through this understanding of, of living in obedience, of pursuing obedience to Christ and to God the Father. And so the Spirit is in us, but it's not in the world. Jesus is in us, but he's not seen by the world. And Jesus manifests himself to his obedient children. But if we just stop right there, we just kind of closed our Bibles and we just walked away, we run risk of, of something that's very serious. See, Jesus has made clear distinctions between how the disciples interact with God and how the world would interact with God. But we might miss that Jesus first had to relate to God for us. We might miss the good news of this whole situation. We might miss that you and I were part of that category of the world, that we didn't see the Spirit. We didn't know the Spirit. We didn't see Jesus. But thank goodness that Jesus himself knew the Father, and Jesus himself has provided that way to the Father. See, Jesus is telling us that the world is just marked by inability, that they don't know the Spirit. They can't see Jesus that was us, right? I mean, last fall when we were walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul writes this. He, said that he says to his recipients in the church in Ephesus, he said they were separated from Christ, alienated from Israel, without God, and without hope in the world. Excuse me. It, it makes sense, Right? If we just kind of walk through this passage and we say, okay, the world doesn't see the Spirit or know the Spirit, doesn't see Jesus any longer, how then could it actually obey Jesus? If it doesn't see him in the spiritual sense, it's not filled with the Holy Spirit, how then could it actually fulfill the categories of obedience, right? It's, it's like when you get those emails. Do you ever get, I get these emails all the time that are from a, a prince in Nigeria, right? He's going to give me millions of dollars. I promise. I, I feel bad. Maybe there is like a prince in Nigeria that's actually trying to give money away and nobody's responding. But he writes you this email, and because there's no relationship, there's no connection, there's no response. There's no obedience. So if you and I are disconnected from the Spirit, if we're disconnected from the Father, we're disconnected from Jesus, we don't see him or know him, how would we ever expect that we would actually fulfill his word? truth is, we needed someone else to fulfill the words of the Father. We needed someone else to commune with the Spirit. We needed someone else to live in this fullness of life to show us the way. Jesus performed what he heard from the Father. He says it in places like John 5 and in John 6. He says, all that I see my Father doing, that's what I do. Remember at his baptism, he's filled with the Spirit. He comes out of the, the water and the Spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. And what's the first thing that he does? He goes out and he resists temptation. 
So you and I, we needed someone to relate to God rightly for us. Imagine if you were going out, uh, you're going on vacation. And the day before you leave for, for vacation, I take 200 iPhones and I plant them in the dash of your car, all set with GPS to different locations. And so as you're driving down uh, the highway, there's 50 GPSs uh, toward Canada. There's 50 GPSs set toward someplace in Florida. There's 50 GPSs toward Mexico and 50 toward New Jersey. Let's hope you don't end up in New Jersey, right? And so you're driving down the road, and you've got your GPS turned on, but you get five minutes down the road, and all of a sudden, Siri starts speaking 400 different messages to you at once. How do you tune in to the word that's actually the place you want to go? How do you tune in? How do you block out all of the other voices that are trying to get you to a location? See, this morning, as we talk about why obedience is important, it's the idea that Jesus is that voice that's speaking to us to get us to our destination. And as we love him, we want to commune with him, but, but as we put on patterns of disobedience, it's like we added another GPS to the dashboard. We put another voice in our ear that leads, leads us astray to some other location. See, when, when we obey these words from God, we confirm our connection with him. He makes his home with us. So we ask the question, why obey? Our obedience is the way we tune into the voice of our Savior. Our obedience is the way we block out the voices of the world. Our obedience is the way that we put to death the passions of the flesh that, that want to rule us and control us, that promise to take us to places like New Jersey, and then when you actually get to New Jersey, it's just New Jersey. Okay, it could be any place too. I'm not just ripping on New Jersey. See, this morning we have to tune our hearts and our minds into the voice of the one we love. And as we show ourselves obedient, we, we clear the air, as it were, of so many other idols of the heart. We clear the air of the fog that surrounds our nature so that we can see Christ in all of his beauty. Christians show their love to be genuine in their obedience. We see this in really two different ways. We obey Christ because it is an expression of our love for him. We obey because it's a means of our communing with him. Let's talk about that first thing. We obey because it's an expression of our love for Christ. Right? Very clear in the passage that uh, we love Christ through our obedience. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. I wonder if we might see our obedience as worship. As much as we enjoy singing songs or, or declaring praise to God, reading through the Psalms, and we see those things as worshipful, I wonder if we see our acts of obedience as worshipful to our Savior. That as we walk faithfully in those things that God has called us to do, we might see that we're honoring Christ. It's a statement of our reprioritization 
of the change that we've uh, felt in the gospel. And so we obey because it's, it's an expression of our love for Christ, but we also obey because it's a means of our communion with him. This is what he says in, in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Now certainly that was the first expressed in, in our initial faith in Christ, that God has made his home with us in the spirit, that we initially responded to the call of the gospel. But now we have the joy of reaffirming that call moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, living in submission to the goodness of God, living in submission to the commandments of God. I wonder if we might be a people who see holiness as something that's worth self-denying for. I wonder if we might start to value obedience as an expression of love, as an expression of worship, as a means of communion with our God so that we can experience the joy of fellowship with him. This morning, I just want to take a moment, and I'm just going to give a couple moments for us just to pray. I know all of us, we all have issues that we struggle with. If you're here and you're a Christian and you claim to not have a struggle, that's a different kind of problem. But I just want to leave a few moments for us just to bow our hearts and our heads before God and say, God, I want to bring this before you, and I ask that you would help me to be obedient in that this week. And then I'm going to close us in prayer. Let's go ahead and bow our hearts and our eyes this morning. Father, you said in the Old Testament on multiple occasions that to obey is better than sacrifice. That our obedience to you is rich with faith. That our mindless, motion-oriented religion may not be pleasing to you. So Lord, fill us with heartfelt obedience, loving obedience for you, for your son, as you empower us and counsel us through your spirit. Lord, give us a rich communion with you. We might be shaped by our presence with you, and we might thirst more for you and for your glory in all things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.